You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 54, Where Are All the Aliens? Back in episode 10, we talked about the psychology of why people believe that aliens might have visited Earth, and in some cases, abducted people. There's no good evidence that aliens have ever contacted Earth, and we don't have evidence that there are any aliens out there at all. Before we get into the main topic of today, however, I have to ask, Jim, why do you want to talk about the possibility of actual aliens on a brain podcast? (laughs) Right. That's a fair question. Yeah, the podcast is called Minding the Brain, and we talk a lot about brains, but it's also a cognitive science podcast. And in my mind anyway, cognitive science is about the study of minds. And those minds might be implemented in human brains, or they might be implemented in animal brains or artificial intelligences or possibly alien life. So we don't need to change the title of our podcast to Minding the Alien Brain? (laughs) No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, cognitive science is interested in how intelligence and cognition works, even if it's not a brain that's doing it, right? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, there, there might be particular cognitive tasks that require, say, memory, and it doesn't matter if that agent is a computer program running on a desktop computer, or if it's a distributed neural network in an octopus, or if it's in a human brain, or if it's in a plant. Memory would be uh, required for that task, no matter how you did it. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the octopi, octopuses. They're very smart. Anyway, yeah. Shout out to them. Yeah, love the octopi. So if there are alien intelligences, how their cognition works you're saying would be a part of cognitive science, correct? Yes, that's my vision of cognitive science. In in practice, of course, the vast majority of studies are on human beings. I mean, we don't have any aliens to study, for one thing. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Yet, right? So to get into today's topic, a few episodes back, we talked about where are all the geniuses. But today we're going to talk about where are all the aliens? Why is this even a question? So in July of 2022, the new James Webb telescope started sending its first images. And you can look at side-by-side images of what the Hubble telescope images look like. That was the predecessor. And you can compare them to what we have now. And it's really breathtaking. I saw one image of a patch of sky that was so small that to cover it, you would hold out a grain of sand at arm's length. Wow. Yeah. And, and what was there was breathtaking. There's so many galaxies. And each galaxy holds millions of stars. And we don't know how many have planets and how many of those planets might have life. It's mind-boggling because we also don't know many how many have intelligent life. Yes, yes, right. And does this have to do with the Drake equation? Yeah, yes. There's an equation that is used to estimate how much life should be out there in the universe. And it's based on, it has variables for like the number of stars, planets, and so on. But it's not super practically useful because we really don't know what numbers to put into it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way to help guide your thought, right? And, and for most people, when they look at the equation and they just kind of estimate in their head, whatever the number turns out to be of, like, number of intelligent civilizations out there, the answer would be big. Okay. Right? So that leads to a natural question, right? If the universe is teeming with life, and even a fraction of that was intelligent, then where are they? How come we've seen no trace of them? No radio signals, no visitations, no communications. And this is what's known as the Fermi paradox. Right. And the ancient astronomers thought Earth was the center of the universe. And as we made more discoveries, just created better theories, we now understand that Earth is just being in a not really special place. And human beings being central and important to the universe has gotten less and less plausible. Yeah, right. So, you know, believing in aliens kind of is an extension of that, right? It, mm. It's that- 
it's an extension. We're not so special. Like, why wouldn't there be other mm-hmm. intelligent life out there? Like, we're, isn't it kind of hubris? Yeah. To true. think that we're the only ones out there, just like it would be hubris to think that we're the center of the universe, right? True, true. Hm. Yeah. So, so we're going to talk about how different scholars have tried to explain the Fermi paradox. So, wh- why don't we see any evidence of aliens? And we're going to start, well, let's just start with the darker possibilities. <laughs> yeah, let's get those out of the way so we can yeah. end on some less dark ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And high. I mean, the first possibility is that there, it just might be that there are natural cosmic events like uh, supernova or whatever that eventually destroy civilizations before they can have a chance to even spread off planet. So basically nobody even gets a fighting chance to make contact with anybody else. Right. Mm. Um, that, you know, that's a possibility. Another one, another dark one is that intelligent species always end up destroying themselves. Wow. I didn't think you'd go that dark. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, pretty <sorry>. grim. <laughs> Right. So, but it's, it's a, I'll give you a thought experiment to help appreciate it. This was by philosopher Nick Bostrom, who I admire a lot. He asks us to imagine that scientific discoveries are like balls in an urn, like a big bucket of balls. And humanity or some other intelligent species in the process of doing science reaches into that urn and pulls out a ball once in a while. And those are scientific discoveries. And some of these balls are okay, meaning that discovering them will not result in the end of civilization. And we'll, let's say, let's call those the green ones. And maybe most of the balls are green, right? But then there might be a few red balls in there and possibly pulling out one of these would mean the end of us. I feel like I need an example here. Okay. Well, let's take a look at nuclear bombs, which each of which is capable of causing enormous destruction. Now, the first atomic bombs to be made required enormous human mind power and resources and years of work. But over time, the creation of atomic bombs and their, the later the nuclear bombs, it got cheaper and easier. But thank goodness, they are still really not very easy to make. Yeah, but we wouldn't, we couldn't have known that for sure when we discovered them. Exactly. Like, what yeah. would the world be like if the ease of making nuclear bombs had advanced as fast as computer technology? Like, what if anybody could make a nuclear bomb if they wanted to? Like, would there be any of us left? Yeah, well, we got lucky. Nuclear bombs was a green ball. But I feel like, you know, when we think about climate change, somehow we're pulling out some red balls, whether we know it or not. Well, we might, yeah, we might be. So, but it's important that we didn't know it was a green ball when we pulled it out, right? And, you know, we're still trying to make scientific discoveries, of course, and maybe the next one will be red. So, as civilization pulls out ball after ball. Eventually, they're going to pull out a red one. Okay. <laughs> so, that's, the, that's mm-hmm. the idea. That is pretty dark. So, why wouldn't we see evidence of civilizations that haven't yet destroyed themselves? Okay, that's, that's a very good question, right? So, there are lots of stars and lots of planets, but they are in lots of space, okay? The distances between them are really large. If you haven't looked into it, it's, it's probably larger than you think. For example, even the distance between the Earth and the Moon, I don't know if you know this, but you could, fit, you could easily fit all of the planets between the Earth and the Moon, easily. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the distances are just gigantic. So, to communicate, to send any information at all from one solar system to another might be limited by the speed of light. Might be? <laughs> I know. I don't want to be too confident. The speed of light is the speed limit as far as we understand, yeah. it, right? But I, I don't want to be too confident about what we won't discover in the future. You know, maybe there's some wormhole technology we'll discover that will mm. effectively give us faster than light communication. I don't know. I mean, we only discovered the speed of light as a sort of speed limit for the universe less than 100 years mm. ago. So how sure can we be about the laws of physics we discover, say, a thousand years from now? Okay, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Right. So light light is really fast, but at a cosmic scale, 
it really seems awfully slow, at least to me. So it takes about eight minutes for light to get from the sun to Earth. And we're very close to the sun by cosmic standard. So for light just across our galaxy takes about 200,000 years. So when you look at a star on the wow. other side of the Milky Way at night, you are seeing the star as it was and where it was 200,000 years ago. So intergalaxy communication, let alone space travel, it would take a very long time. Yeah, I've heard that when you're looking at stars, some of the, they're often already dead, right? They've already ex exploded, which is kind of freaky. So even if the universe was teeming with life, time and space constraints would mean that we'd only have a chance of communicating with a tiny fraction of them, right? Yeah. So physicist uh, Max Tegmark, in his recent book, Life 3.0, which is quite good, he suggests that if the typical distance between civilizations, so let's just assume there are a bunch of civilizations out there, if the typical distance is more than about 20 billion light years, then for all practical purpose, each one is alone. Like, they will just never reach each other. So the distance itself might be enough of an explanation. Right, right. So, okay, but if civilizations tend to extinguish themselves, then even if they are close, we might not see them, right? So we don't know how long it takes for civilizations to extinguish themselves, right? So we don't know how big the urn is, how many red balls are in it. Uh, we've only had we've only had science for a few hundred to a few thousand years, depending on where you draw the line. But either way, not super long on a cosmic scale. Suppose intelligent life makes itself extinct. I don't know, ten thousand years after discovering science, right? On average, that's cosmically speaking a really tiny window of time. So, right? I mean, it takes two hundred thousand years to cross the galaxy. You know, uh, so in, in an area that we could possibly see anybody, intelligent civilizations just might wink in and out of existence one at a time with vast amounts of time in between them where there's nobody, even if we were close enough to make contact. We just, you know, they're gone. I, I picture like a big dark night with once in a while a tiny little flicker of light, and those might oh be like gosh. civilizations coming and destroying themselves, right? And, and, and they're almost never lit at the same time, and they're so far apart that they couldn't get into contact. And each of them are probably wondering, where are all the aliens? <laughs> right. And making podcast episodes about them. <laughs> alien podcast episodes. That's your mind in the alien brain podcast right there. So anyway, in May 2022, some scientists looked at the rise and fall of civilizations on Earth. And they noted that the ones that grow eventually reach a point where they are too big. And they either stop growing or they collapse completely. So they're, they just they can outgrow themselves and, and collapse or they can decide to stop growing, okay? So mm. the, the, the reason seems to be that the energy needs grow super linearly. So as the civilization grows linearly, the energy needs uh, grow at a much faster rate and it can eventually there's a hard limit on the growth that they can experience. So they, they applied this to thinking about possible civilizations out there in the cosmos, maybe they reach a point where they see the danger coming and decide to stop growing, in which case we might not see them, or they don't, and then they collapse. But either way, we don't hear from them because the growth limit is small compared to the distances between us and them. So they, they wouldn't expand into our space because they would collapse first. This sounds speculative to me. <laughs> It does to me, too. You know, it does. Mm, mm. And I don't know why that would mean there wouldn't be communication. It's not like our territories would literally have to bump into each other before we knew they were there. That, yeah, right. That's a good point. You know, so I'm not sure if that's covered. But all right, let's talk about another dark possibility. Uh, that This one's really dark, is that civiliz civilizations tend to destroy each other. And the only ones that survive are the ones that are quiet enough that don't go exploring. 
they're, they're just very, they stay very quiet. So this is, this is called the dark forest theory. It's popularly known as the dark forest th theory. And it's based on the idea that forests, when you're in a forest at night, there's way more life in there than is immediately obvious to you. And that's because they're all hiding. They're all animal life is either trying to avoid being eaten or they are trying to hunt. But in either case, not being seen is very beneficial. So the idea is at a cosmic scale, uh, if it's much less costly to destroy another civilization than to risk trying to create a mutually beneficial relationship, then the cosmos might evolve this way. That is the most violent civilizations are the only ones left. Okay, so if, if let's say there's a civilization, they find somebody else, right? Well, should you try to make contact and make a mutually beneficial relationship? Well, it might be, that might be very risky and they might make the calculus that it's just safer to just destroy them outright, right? And if that's true, then only the ones that are either quiet or most violent would be the only ones that are there. And so that's why we don't hear anything. The one, you know, nobody's making any noise. So people who endorse this theory think that even if aliens were to contact us, we should not try to respond. <laughs> Wow, how about a brighter possibility? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so another reason aliens might not bother to communicate uh, or to expand is because they have everything they want right where they are. Really? Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine. We're like, because we our, our culture at least is very exploratory, but... Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, this takes us, like, we're, we're sometimes anthropomorphizing, which is when you're putting thoughts on other species, but maybe we're doing that with aliens. Do they even want to communicate? Well, yeah, I mean, and also, uh, to some extent, uh, our culture, right? Like, they're, mm. they're like, uh, China, for example, knew all about North America when the Europeans first got wind of it, but they had no interest in calling it. Right. It's so, so, you know, the, the, the European culture that you and I are uh, mostly descended from is a very get out there and explore and, you know, kind of kind of an attitude. Right. You know, and all of this stuff requires science fiction thinking. Right. So when you say it's speculative, you know, it, it, that's you have to be speculative or you're going to miss some possibilities. So we're, we're just going to have to bear with that. <laughs> um, but like, let's think about what it might be like. So suppose we were to develop really great virtual reality experiences that were so good that the real world starts to seem kind of boring in comparison. Like so boring that people wouldn't even want to go outside? No. <laughs> well, well, if you think about it, we're already, we already spend an enormous amount of time in essentially artificial environment. We're, we, we're in buildings and mm. cities and cars. Why? Like, why do we, why aren't we out there in the woods all the time? Well, we do it because it's more comfortable for the most part, right? It, even mm. in an artificial building, what do we spend our time doing? We're talking on the phone, looking at screens, you know, listening to podcasts. That, I mean, these are virtual environments, right? Um, and, and, you know, if these eventually were able to, like people might legitimately ask you, why are you talking on the phone or listening to a podcast when you could be with a flesh and blood person? Why yeah. are you in the house when you could be outside in February? Well, it's nicer, right? So <laughs> now if we, if, if we can eventually get to the point where these virtual reality technologies can directly interface with our sensory brain areas, we might not find it very rewarding to actually go anywhere. Like we would have everything we'd need in a in a virtual format. Yeah, but without exercise, you'd waste right. away. That's true, and we uh, 
you know, hat tip mm. or exercise episode. Um, mm. But, you know, remember that many other things would be advancing too. And so, uh, you know, it is theoretically possible that all that stuff is taken care of by technology as well, right? So there, there could be artificial means of keeping your body in perfect physical health without actually having to engage in exercise. Like I said, science fiction, right? <laughs> so if we take this further... We might imagine that our minds uh, are actually uploaded to computers, and we don't need biological bodies at all. Okay. Uh, I know, Jim, you're the AI guy, but you are losing me here. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, and you know, it might not even be possible, but, you know, we're, we're, we're just looking at—we're trying to, like, look at the broadest slate of possibilities here. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, the, you know, it could be that if your mind and your consciousness is primarily an information processing thing— uh, then it might be possible to um, have it running in some other non-brain uh, hardware. Maybe not a computer the way we think about it, but something, right? Something more durable, maybe something faster. So when one is just software, uh, you can experience time differently, okay? When you're interacting with a virtual uh, interface, time can go at a faster rate, for example. So you might be able to have a week of experience in a minute, a minute of time based on the clock on the wall. Okay. Now, if you're in this state, you'd probably be more interested in virtual objects than real ones because the real ones are just too slow. Whoa. So a civilization might get so hooked on the internet that they don't care about space. Like, isn't there a movie about this? It's uh, Ready Player One, or yeah. they're like, yeah, they're um, so hooked to their online game that they have no need for existing in their real world. Yeah, Ready Player One is, a, is a, I think, a good novel for showing that, for, for sort of getting you to say, okay, this is possible, right? There are also Star Trek episodes where people are just, I mean, the Matrix movie is, kind, I mean, these people aren't deliberately staying in the Matrix, but basically their bodies are taken care of and they're just living in a virtual reality and having soup and doing whatever. Um, but, um, you know, you can imagine if you can get your brain to run 10 times as fast as it is now, you know, reading, going, going for a walk would be agonizingly slow. So you just go on virtual walk. So in a nutshell, yeah. I feel like this could be an episode of Black Mirror. Too. <laughs> if you think it's bad, yes. But, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, our, our VR stuff right now is, is primitive compared to what it might end up being. You know, I think if you go to like... Um, hunter-gatherers or somebody, people who live out in the wilderness and say, hey, basically, we spend all our time in huts. They would think that was horrendous. But, that, you know, they might have a hard time imagining that we have these really glorious interior environments that are really comfortable, you know? It's fair. We have toilet paper. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about another one. So, it might be that alien life is so uh, alien uh, that we can't even detect traces of it. You mean there might be evidence of alien life already visible, but we don't perceive it? Yeah, we don't see it. Yeah, we don't see it like that, mm-hmm. right? So we mm-hmm. we think of it as a mysterious cosmic phenomena, but it actually might be alien technology, and we have no idea what it's for or what its mechanism is. So we don't interpret it that way. We just see it as a mystery of the universe. What about the Prime Directive? Oh yeah, yeah, Prime Directive. That's from so the Prime Directive term is from Star Trek, and in that franchise. The Federation of Planets, which is like a, the UN of space or whatever, has a rule and it says that you're not allowed to contact an intelligent species until they develop warp technology, which is their like faster than light travel. So they just have this rule. Do not mess with anybody until they have warp. 
Yeah, in the movie Star Trek First Contact, they show how humans developed warp technology, and when they first successfully test it, the Vulcans show up within like half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) I love that part. Yeah, in science, science, this is actually called the zoo hypothesis, right? So that we're kind of in a zoo enclosure, we don't really know it. Uh, Based on the idea that the aliens are aware of us, but they just want to observe, perhaps for now. It's a fun theory, um, and I, I... I think it's kind of neat to think that, like, we never know what ball we're going to pull out of the urn that's going to make the equivalent of the Vulcan show up. <laughs> mm. But, I yeah. mean, as you can see, as a scientist, it basically is a theory that says you will not find evidence for it. <laughs> right. So, so we, there's no evidence for it because, like, it, this theory kind of rules it out. Kind of like kind of like really good conspiracy theories. Like, there's no evidence. You can't find evidence for y- it. Yeah, you can't. Uh, there's no ability for it to be fallible. So... Maybe life is common, but life that gets intelligent enough to be able to communicate to life on other planets is really rare. Yeah, yeah, that's another possibility. It's just intelligent life is rare. Yeah, people tend to think of evolution for humans anyway as a process that would eventually lead to us, but it may not like be like that at all. Right, right. Evolution doesn't ha- it, it it does have a process, but it's not one that inevitably moves toward more complexity or more intelligence. Mm. You know, sometimes species evolve to become less intelligent if it means they can reproduce more. Like, the only thing that evolution optimizes is reproduction. Right. And what's true is that evolution builds on species that came before, so that higher complexity must follow lower complexity. But that doesn't mean that a species always gets more complex. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, right? So, it might be that the creation of human-level cognitive capacities with culture and language and everything, it, it might just end up that it's really rare. So the complexity has to follow simpler stuff, but it's just not inevitable. Okay, here's one for you. What is the pos- What about the possibility that we're actually alone? Like alone, alone. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. So many people's first reaction to this is that it's highly unlikely. And uh, because of the way they think about the probability of it, given Drake's equation. But another way to make it seem plausible to think about us being completely alone is that we're actually the first. Does that also, doesn't that also seem really unlikely? <laughs> like, um, right, what's the chance of all the civilizations that ever appear? What's the, what is the chance that we're going to be first, right? But yeah. let's, let's look at life on Earth. Yes, Les, because things got very weird a few minutes ago. <laughs> with you, always. We're going to bring it back to Earth. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so, yeah, as you know, all life on Earth has a common ancestor. Yes, I do know this. Life on Earth is a big tree. Everything living under it is somehow related in every other living thing. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Right. So that means Mm. life on Earth is the way it is with its amino acids and DNA because our ancient ancestors were the first on Earth to get it right and eventually spread around the Earth. Okay, so I see. We don't exactly know exactly how life started on Earth, but whatever happened, it generated all the life that we see. And molecules today came together and created what we might think of as precursors of life, but these just get eaten by the life that's already there, right? Yeah, right. So new new proto-life is always being created, but it just gets eaten. It, there's no... Mm. It can't get a, a new form of life can't get a foothold on Earth because the ecological space is already occupied by our tree of life. Mm-hmm. So you're suggesting that we might be like that, like within the entirety of the universe? Yeah. So this idea is based on a few assumptions that might be wrong. Just like the rest of them. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> so suppose that rather than you know inevitably destroying itself, we have a much more optimistic destiny. Suppose that any civilization that discovers science or something like that, eventually uh, spreads throughout the universe and starts changing it according to its values. 
So we terraform other planets, we harvest energy from the stars, things like yes. that. And and then just like life on Earth, this happens fast enough, and even if it takes thousands of years, that other intelligent life doesn't get an opportunity to get started because we've already reformatted the universe in our in our image. Well, wouldn't we want other life forms? Well, we might, but before they would have a chance to evolve themselves, we might be able to just create whatever life we want, like in the lab, so to speak. This is a really out there. Yeah, hypothesis it is. It is really out there. But yeah, you know, I, I think about it like life on Earth, right? So if there are always proto life being generated and just gets eaten, do we feel like there's a terrible loss that no new tree of life is forming on Earth? Like, it, maybe if you think about it, it bothers you. But I've never heard anyone ever like despair that. There's only one tree of life on Earth. Anyway, <laughs> this particular vision is suggested by uh, the inventor Ray Kurzweil. And the idea is that we know we're first because if we weren't first, we wouldn't exist at all. Right. If it had been another civilization, they would have used Earth's matter for something else before we would have even had, Ugh. before life would have even had a chance to have evolved here. Just, just like those, you know, proto-life things on Earth today. Well, this civilization, ours or someone else's, would have to spread really fast, right? Well, yeah, not fast by historical standards, but maybe fast compared to cosmic timescales. Um, the, the, the sort of sci-fi idea of like galactic civilizations going to war that you see in movies and stuff, it kind of assumes that they're all, they all kind of got started around the same time. And mm. if the fight is like fair enough to even call it a war, their technology is like almost at exactly the same place. But th that's what's crazy unlikely. Yeah, like in Independence Day, where they defeat the invading aliens with a virus they make on, of all things, a 1996 MacBook. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like, when, but, like, this is a great example. When we're in 1996, audiences were like, yeah, okay. But now... This is plausible. Yeah. But, but 1996 <laughs> wasn't even that long ago. But now when we look back, we're like, okay, really? Like, aliens buy a 1996 MacBook, right? Maybe today's MacBook, but not a 1996 MacBook. <laughs> when you look at how fast military technology has changed, even in the last hundred years, um, you know, what are the chances of, you know, the two civilizations being, like, right at the same level of technology? So this brings us to another issue, and that is whether or not it's actually us humans who go out exploring space. So this is still related to us sort of going out into the universe, but is it going to be humans or our descendants? Ooh, like what? Well, to, to talk about that, let's, let's talk about some forms of extinct that aren't that bad. <laughs> Uh, I can't wait to hear this one. <laughs> right. I don't, <laughs> these are all so wacky. <laughs> I know. So, as you know, most species who have ever, that have ever existed on Earth are now extinct. Now, when most people think about a species going extinct, you think about the dodo or the dinosaurs or some species where all the members just die out. But uh, biologists also call a species extinct when it simply evolves into some new species. Right, like up to a certain point. So horse evolution is relatively fleshed out. We know that the modern horse descended from previous horse-like species, like a pilohippus or something, right? Yeah. Right, but it's not like the, the, the pleohippus died out. As pleohippus. Oh, I thought it was pilohippus. Anyway, they just gradually became horses, right? So you're suggesting humans might evolve into some new species that's not quite human, but somehow is our, des our, our descendants? So I suppose that's possible. I, I don't think that's... That scenario is particularly likely for reasons I'm not going to get into now. But where I'm going mm. with this is that we might create uh, artificial beings that eventually replace us. 
like artificial intelligences. Artificial intelligences, artificial life. I, you know, I don't know how best to describe it because we haven't, you know, we're nowhere near making it. But, you know, something that we have a big hand in designing such that mm-hmm. it eventually makes less and less sense to call them human, right? You know, maybe mm-hmm. we upload our, uh, our minds into computers and we live in more or less immortal lives in artificial bodies, right? So would we still want to call ourselves mm-hmm. human if we were to do that, right? It's a good question. I'm getting a, a vision of the jar, uh, the heads in the jars in that show Futurama. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> anyway, but if in this in this scenario, if aliens did this, the beings, whatever they would be, would still be beings who might visit or communicate with us in some way, shape, or form, right? Uh, right, right. I'm just pointing out uh, an extinction possibility that we might actually well. You're very weird. <laughs> okay, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> so, roboticist uh, Hans Moravec, he came up with a beautiful term for artificial beings who replace us. He calls them our mind children, as opposed to sort of our biological children. They're like they're like the descendants of our mind. So, the biological components, you know, our biological components have some severe limitations to them, right? Particularly in the context of outer space, cosmic rays, mm. and you know, it, our bodies are not made to be outside of Earth's atmosphere and gravity. So he and many others have suggested that if we were to be contacted or visited by aliens, they would be much more likely to be the mind children of the biological species that helped create them. Okay, so let me get this. We'd be more likely to encounter alien AIs than aliens themselves? Yes, yes, that's the thought, right? And it might be that, if Kurzweil's right, it's not exactly us that will explore space, but our mind children. Right, so it, right. so it, whoever explores and takes over space, it'll probably be their artificial descendants and not the actual biological being. I have very mixed feelings about yeah, this. I'm right there with you. Right, it's it's very disturbing to think that the future of humanity doesn't have humanity in it. Right, <laughs> um, but you know, let's think a little bit more deeply about robots of some form or other exploring space. Um, now, moving material through space is, as far as we can foresee, going to be very expensive. And I don't mean money, I just mean like energy and whatever. It's a lot of resource. So it's likely going to be more efficient to explore space, not with big Star Wars kind of spaceships, but with small packets of like instructions that will g- generate the spread of civilization with the materials that it, it finds on site, as it were. So it just sends instructions and then uses mm. material that it finds to build. So, like a small craft will land on a planet, say, and then start constructing? Exactly. And one of our colleagues at Carleton, actually, Dr. Alex Ellery, is working on making machines that will be cheap enough to send to the moon. And once they get there, they'll create bigger machines that will create solar panels and stuff because it's too expensive to actually make the stuff here and get it out of our atmosphere. So you just get small things that will build stuff out of moon rocks and things. Wow. So the machines explore the galaxy by recreating themselves on different planets and moons? Right. So, which then, in turn, send out other ships that do the same thing. And that's how space gets colonized, right? So this kind of little ship is called uh, a von Neumann probe. That's the term we use for it. Now, if if there are thousands of probes going out there and replicating, and there are going to be hundreds of thousands in the next generation and so on, there are going to be copying errors. And that means... Evolution. Right. Evolution. So whenever mm. you have a diverse population, mm-hmm. inheritance, and not every member of that population gets to reproduce at the same rate, there will be evolution. So we, I mean, it's most obvious in human biologic or in uh, Earth biological life, but we also see it in ideas. And anytime you get those three things, there's going to be evolution. So this mm-hmm. might result in a very lifelike trajectory of these von Neumann probes taking over the universe, right? An evolving set 
of uh, probes evolving to spread throughout the cosmos more and more efficiently. Uh, would this be good or bad? So I think answering that would take in another another entire episode. <laughs> so the, this is a good place to cut it off. Aliens, if you're listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please send us a message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alternatively, it is not advised to use cannabis products before the listening of this episode. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. <laughs>